Let's pray together. Father, help us now to receive from you. We've, we've given you praise. Help us now to receive from you uh, this great hope of the return of your son through the teaching of your son himself. So help us receive it, um, not just with our minds, but with our lives, that we might live as though we believe it to be true. So help us, Father, with this. By your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are these days of Lent walking through Jesus' last week together, and we have been through um, Lazarus Saturday and Palm Sunday and Fig Monday, and now today we find ourselves on Great and Holy Tuesday and Spy Wednesday. So I'll see if we can make sense out of those as we go along. Most of the scriptures um, on those two days, almost all of them focus on the events of Tuesday, of that Holy Tuesday, it's called. Um, It probably could have a more descriptive name, right? Uh, If I was going to give it one, I would call it Teaching Tuesday, because Jesus teaches a lot on Tuesday. Um, He starts, for instance, in Matthew 21, and he runs through Matthew 26. All of the teachings that's included in those five or so chapters is part of Tuesday. Now, when I taught through the Gospel of Matthew a couple of years ago, it took me 10 sermons to get through Tuesday. So, I hope you're DVRing the games this afternoon. We're going to be here a while. Um, No, we're going to skip across the pond today. But, you know, here's a... Here's a great idea, would be this afternoon uh, at halftime maybe, uh, listen to the reading of this teaching by Jesus. If you'll go to BibleGateway.com, my favorite version is the NIV dramatized version, it's really well read, and you can listen in about a half an hour to this entire teaching uh, of Jesus. It's really, really powerful. But uh, we'll spend most all of our time today in Matthew 21 through 26, if you want to open your Bibles there. If you don't like the name Teaching Tuesday, you could call this Conflict Tuesday. You could call it Combat Tuesday because Jesus goes to war with his adversaries on this day in a way that he has not up until now. Um, Now, if you remember last week when we looked at the events of Monday, we bled over into Tuesday morning. On Monday, Jesus cursed a fig tree and cleansed the temple, right? Um, And then on Tuesday morning, On coming into town again, into Jerusalem again, the disciples saw that withered fig tree. Jesus explained what it meant to them. And then our story picks up on the rest of Tuesday as he leaves the scene of the fig tree and the teaching there, and he enters into Jerusalem, uh, back into Jerusalem and back into the temple, which is really pretty bold since just yesterday on Monday, he was in the temple and he tore it up right, throwing furniture, uh, chasing people out, Um, he goes back to the temple on Tuesday. Um, And once he gets there, it's game on with his adversaries. They see him and they go after him. And they are literally um, setting traps for Jesus with their words, They're asking things like, by whose authority are you doing these things? And should we pay taxes to Caesar? And if someone, if a woman had seven husbands in this life, 
who will be her husband in the resurrection? They're not honest questions. They're traps. And Matthew, in fact, tells us what's really going on in uh, chapter 22, verse 15 on that Tuesday. He says, the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. So if you're taking notes today, just a little note to self. It's always a bad idea to try to entangle Jesus in his words, okay? It just doesn't end well. That's not what Jesus' words are for. So um, they were about doing that. And as a result, Jesus' response to all this, his initial response, is to teach a series of three parables. Now, it's one thing when Jesus teaches parables to you. It's another thing when he teaches parables at you. And he is teaching these parables at the leaders. Um, the first, uh, those stories start in the back end of Matthew chapter 21, uh, starting in verse 28. If you want to open your Bibles there, the first one is a parable of two sons. One son says, um, I will do what you ask, Father, and then he doesn't. A second son says, no, Dad, I'm not going to do that, but then he does. And so um, Matt Woodley summarizes that for us. He says, when Jesus asked his followers which of the two did what his father wanted, everybody gets the right answer. So far, so good. It's a simple story, he says, suitable for children. No surprises, nothing offensive, but then Jesus adds a shocking twist. And this is in Matthew 21, starting in verse 31. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. Okay. Ouch. Okay. If you're a religious leader, you've just been parabled, right, um, by Jesus. Now, there's a second story, and the second story uh, starts in verse 33 of chapter 21, goes to the end of the chapter. It involves a landowner who rents his property out, his carefully cultivated vineyard out, to some tenants. And when it's time for him to collect his share of the harvest, he sends some servants um, to collect, but they are beaten and killed by the tenants. And then in an act of unspeakable patience and mercy, the owner doesn't retaliate. Rather, he sends some more servants. And Jesus is telling a story, he doesn't want you to miss, that this is the landowner of the second chance, right? He grants these tenants a second chance. But they respond in like fashion. They beat and kill the second batch of servants. The owner is still gracious, it turns out he's the landowner of third chances. This time, he sends his son to collect what is his, but they treat his son in the same way they murder him as they did the other servants. And at this point in the story, Jesus is spinning this story, and all the leaders are listening, and they're all caught up in the injustice of the story. So in verse 40, Jesus says, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes... What will he do to those tenants? And they say, well, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and, and, be, and let out the vineyard to other tenants who give him the fruits in their seasons. That's what he'll do. And Jesus then says, therefore, I tell you, 
The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Okay. Ouch again, right? They just got parabled again by Jesus. And so in verse chapter 21, verse 45, it says, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And though they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Interesting. One more story Jesus has in chapter 22. It says, And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king this time. As God was the owner, God is now the king. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Okay? You get an invitation from the king to go to what has got to be the party of all parties, the wedding feast of the king's son, and you refuse. So again... He sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, everything is ready, come to the wedding feast. So the king suffers this offense from his guests, and what does he do with this slight? He sends more servants with more enticing invitations, and this time he shows them the menu. We're going to have fatted calf. We're going to have ox, roast oxen. It's going to be great. Um, these were items that were reserved for special guests. This was an honor. And they reject his invitation once again. So what does this king do? When rejected and shamed by those he invites, he invites them again. He gives them a second chance. So... If we could quote the great philosopher Vizzini, this is inconceivable, right? That the king would be this gracious to such undeserving servants. So now, not only do we have an owner of a second chance, we have a king of a second chance. And Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like a king who gives to wholly undeserved guests a second chance. Maybe even a third chance. Verse 5, but they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. Um, they don't pay any attention. It's like they go out to the mailbox, they get the mail, bills, 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 invitation from the king to the greatest party ever, and they just throw it away. Um, they just throw it away. And they go off to work like normal. Maybe they were just too busy. Maybe they had too much work to do. Who's got time for parties? Okay. As far as we know, they, they, weren't, doing, they weren't doing anything terrible. Um, they weren't doing drugs. They weren't listening to 80s music. Nothing awful. Um, they were just going to work. Okay. Just like normal. Um, going about their business. Maybe we should say they were going about their busyness. And maybe they were just too busy for God. 
And it turns out to be worse than that for some of the guests because it says there in verse 5 and 6, um, they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Now, this really is inconceivable, right? Murder over a wedding invitation. Okay, that's, uh, that's a little over the top, wouldn't you say, in terms of ways to decline wedding invitations? The king's generosity and his patience exceed all expectations, but so does this rejection at a level that commits murder. This is inconceivable. Okay. At least it seems that way, unless we keep in mind the context in which Jesus is teaching this, right? So it's Tuesday of Jesus last week. As, as we saw earlier, they are trying to arrest him. And in just two days, these same leaders would succeed in engineering not only his arrest on that day, but also his murder on the next day by being nailed to a cross. Okay. There's no hyperbole in Jesus' um, trilogy of stories here. They really are about to kill the son as they have killed the prophets before him and John the Baptist too. Okay. They will kill this messenger, God's son, as well. Okay. And so these are the most pointed of Jesus' parables. Jesus is flailing these people, these leaders, with these parables. And as he continues that teaching, that story, that last one, the story takes this turn in verse 7. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Right? And at this point in the story, this really doesn't come as a real surprise. Um, the king's patience has been exhausted. The last great treasonous act to murder the king's son would surely be considered such. Um, and now... Um, Bring his just judgment upon them. So step out of the parable just for a moment with me. Um, clearly, Jesus is teaching that he believes that the severest of judgments wait for those who reject him. Okay? He's been teaching that throughout Matthew consistently. Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Chapter 10, Jesus says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And then again, on this Holy Tuesday that we're looking at, in chapter 25 of Jesus' teaching, he says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And just a couple verses later, he says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus is teaching on this Holy Tuesday um, that a judgment of the severest kind, even an eternal kind, is awaiting those who reject King Jesus. Okay? Chapter 25 
is awash with this teaching. We aren't going to be able to do any more than look at those couple of verses there, but it is full of this kind of judgment language for those who reject Jesus. But back in his last story, what happens next really is nothing less than inconceivable because the king says to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So this king invites yet again, but this time the invitation is extended to anyone who will accept it, both bad and good. So you know what this means for us then? This is how we get in. We are the undeserving who get this invitation to the king's son's wedding feast. Okay? You and me, we are now invited to the wedding feast of his son. We're invited to the kingdom. And this tells us that we have a king who's very, very generous He really loves a party, and he wants you and me there, okay? This is inconceivable, okay? But what happens next on this Holy Tuesday really is why I call this Combat Tuesday at one level. Uh, it's even more combative with Jesus' opponents. Uh, it's the strongest indictment of, and warnings against religious leadership, the scribes and the Pharisees. It starts in chapter 23. In fact, it consumes the entire chapter of chapter 23. Um, Jesus says to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you but not what they do, for they preach, but do not practice. Do as they say, Jesus says, not as they do. He's warning them, do not follow your religious leader's example. This is really stunning. This would be like somebody saying, um, hey, come, come to my church. Pastor's a really great teacher, but don't follow his example. Um, why would you say that? Because they do not practice what they preach. You recognize that saying? It's one of those last vestiges of, of Bible that's still around in our English language. It comes from Jesus here. Um, don't follow their example. And Jesus says they're hypocrites. Verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. So uh, these leaders had all these extra rules, um, traditions, oral traditions. They had, they had rules that protected rules. And by one count, the Pharisees had like uh, 613 of them. Um, Nobody can keep all those, right? And, and they do nothing to help them. They are all rules, no compassion, it seems. Um, and the good deeds they do, 
they do to be seen by others. Okay? They were not for the people, but they really wanted to be before the people. Okay? They wanted to be up here on the box, right? Where everybody could see how spiritual they are. They want to be important on the one hand, to be esteemed. And if you have that desire on the one hand and the desire to be compassionate on the other, you cannot do both. They're mutually exclusive desires. Okay. The one will cost you the other. Pride, self-exaltation, and self-concern, it's the great enemy of love and compassion. And Jesus now warns of repeated ways that their pride has tainted these leaders. He says, um, they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. They want to make sure everyone can see how spiritual they are. Um, these you don't have to know what a phylactery is to get the sense here, right? They want to be something that makes them look spiritual. It's like, uh, I've likened it before. This is like taking your Greek New Testament to small group and making sure everybody knows. It's fine to take it, but when you want everybody to know, uh, that's a bit of a problem. Um, they love the places of honor, they do. They want to be up here on the box. They want to be on the stage. They want to be in front. They want to have the good seats. Um, they love to be greeted as rabbi. We often render that teacher, but it can have the idea of my master or my great one. They love that. Um, it'd be like, again, making sure that your small group calls you Dr. Smith instead of by your first name, even at small group. Okay? Um, which would be like me wanting the elders to call me reverend. Okay? I don't, and they wouldn't. Um, you get the sense, though, that they want to be esteemed, right? They want to be up in, they want to be up in front. They want to look spiritual. They posture themselves to be seen, especially their spiritual practices. And, um, and they're not the only ones. Have you ever wanted to be seen doing something spiritual, serving a certain way, um, in a certain place, attending a certain event, mindful, reading a certain thing, um, striving to be honored, to be competitively spiritual, to be more spiritual than people around you? You, know, you can flip it around and say, does it ever bother you when people notice and affirm somebody else as being spiritual, but they don't notice you? Um, does it bother you when somebody talks affirmingly about another teacher or leader in ways that they don't talk about you? Jesus is warning us, don't be like these leaders and don't follow them. Okay. And then he puts his point, just as plain as could be in the next few verses. He says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be Exalted. And it's this whole new inconceivable paradigm. The greatest are the ones who serve. We are not to self-exalt. We leave that to God. Okay? We are to pursue humility and put others' interests above our own. If we don't, we face God's humiliation. 
and even his judgment because our pride, as we're going to see in just a minute, can drag a good man all the way down to hell. Um, so there had to be scribes and Pharisees. Jesus teaching crowd, teaching the disciples, and there had to be scribes and Pharisees in that crowd because Jesus now turns to address them directly with a series of seven shocking woes where he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. We don't have time to go through them all. They consume the rest of chapter 23. Let me just give you a couple examples. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte or convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Ouch. Right? Here's another one. Um, Verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Okay, ouch, Jesus. First, these guys get parabled by Jesus, not once, but three times. And now they get woed by Jesus, not once or twice, But seven times he pronounces these woes upon them. And if there's a thread that runs through all of them, a major theme uh, about these woes as to why Jesus was pronouncing it on them, I would say it is their pride. And Jesus is saying, don't follow leaders like this and don't be like them. They major on minors, on things they can control. They are about externals, what others can see. Self-exaltation, bragging, pride. They really can turn good religious people, like scribes and Pharisees, like you and me, against Jesus. Pride can do that. Has your pride kept you from following Jesus in certain ways? I'll give you an interesting example. Uh, A guy named Rick Berry. Got a picture of Rick here. Rick was uh, 15 years uh, a Hall of Famer in the NBA. Uh, He's renowned um, for being the second best by like a .01%, second best free throw shooter in the history of the NBA. But what was unusual is the way he shot them. He shot granny style, which you can see Steph Curry shooting uh, that way um, in that one instance. Um, The statistics don't lie. This type of shooting is mechanically more sound and more efficient and more reliable than the traditional free throw shot, right? Uh, There's a guy, they actually hired in 2008 Discover Magazine Uh, asked a physics professor to analyze the two shots, and he agreed the granny style with its 45-degree thing and the backspin was a more reliable way to shoot a free throw. So another guy you need to know about is a guy named Wilt Chamberlain. Now, Wilt is the only player in NBA history to score 100 points in a game. Now, the other thing he's known for, there's several things he's known for, the other thing he's known for on the basketball court is uh, he was a horrible free throw shooter, shot 54% throughout his career, except for one game, 
That game where he scored 100 points, he made 28 of 32 free throws. You know why? He shot granny style that one game, but he wouldn't do it after that. And you know why? They, they've tried to think it through, and uh, Rick, Rick Barry and a guy named uh, Malcolm Gladwell, who some of you have read his works, their simple answer is because players are too embarrassed or too proud, or both, to, sh- to shoot granny style. He says it looks silly and almost, and most players would rather miss shots than look like a granny and score more points. <laughs> so in a word, it's pride. Um, has your pride misshaped your faith such that there are things Jesus is asking of you that you refuse to do? Maybe ways to serve that you think are beneath you. Or forgiveness that you will not ask. Reconciliation you will not pursue because your wrong is the lesser. Time that you will not give because they don't deserve it. You have more important things to do. Look with me. Look at where pride can take you. In verse 37, Jesus cries out over the city, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. You would not. Pride can make you say no to Jesus' care and compassion and leadership for you. It did, many of the scribes and Pharisees. Their pride would not let them receive this stinging rebuke. It's interesting. Chapter 23 is Jesus' last public teaching. These are his last words. The woes to the Pharisees and then this lament over Jerusalem. It's the last thing Jesus taught to the public. It was, I think... Humanly speaking, this teaching was why Jesus was killed. It was the straw that broke the camel's back. And they plotted then to kill him. As a matter of fact, the next day of the week, we're on Holy Tuesday, right? The next day is known as Spy Wednesday. And on Spy Wednesday, the leaders were, the only events we have from that day, the leaders were conferring about how to trap Jesus, how to arrest him, and how to have him killed. And then we have this account in 26, verses 14, where it says, One of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. And so on that Wednesday, a disciple became a spy. A traitor, really. And in Judah's case, it was his greed that led him there. But, you know, greed is really not that far off of pride. It's a sibling vice. Um, Both of them make things orbit around self too much, around me, what I can get, how important I am. 
O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing, you would not. There's an old saying, right? Pride goeth before a fall. You ever heard that one? It's actually a, a little adaptation of what the book of Proverbs teaches. The book of Proverbs, actually, that quote is, Pride goes before destruction. And here Jesus is begging them to come to him, and they would not. Let's go back to Tuesday. Later in the day, probably in the afternoon, Jesus is done teaching the crowds, and he leaves the temple, was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. And he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Um, What follows uh, is Jesus' reply to their questions. And it's one of the main emphasis of his teaching to his disciples on that Holy Tuesday. They're asking him, when will the temple be destroyed? And when will you come back? And they anticipate them coming together. We know now that they have been separated. And that 40 years later, the prophecy Jesus made about the temple being destroyed happened. And the temple was destroyed in about 70 AD. But we still wait for Jesus' return. And so he does not answer when those things are going to happen. He answers, his reply is an exhortation as to how to live and be ready when those things happen. Chapter 24, drop down to verse 37, and Jesus gives this little history lesson. He says, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And Jesus here says three things about Noah. He says, one, it happened. He treats it as a historical reality. Secondly, it's an expression of God's judgment. And thirdly, it happened totally unexpected, okay? It happened amidst the everyday, just like any other day, just like this day, okay? This is how Jesus says it will be when he returns, a great and totally unexpected judgment resulting in devastating loss to many And now he tells two more stories, kind of contemporary stories to buttress that story about Noah. He says, two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. So again, just like the Noah account, right? It's everyday stuff. Everyday tasks in the field, at the mill, we could say in the office, at the school. It's also an imagery, I think, of people that are in close relationship, of coworkers, maybe even family members. Was that a father and a son out, out in the field? Um, 
Could it have been two brothers there? Could those be two sisters who were working in the mill? Luke says in his telling, he says, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed and one will be taken and the other left. Could this be a husband and a wife? And suddenly, unexpectedly, one is taken to a devastating judgment and the other is spared. Just like that, in the middle of the week, in the middle of a work day, in the middle of the night, a normal day, just like any other day, just like this day. Nobody knew, and brothers and sisters and co-workers and friends were taken in judgment in the middle of an ordinary day, just like that. And so how concerned should we be for the people we work with, the people we are in school with, the people who live next to us, our family, that on this day when it comes, they would not be the one taken in judgment. How should this great concern shape the way we pray and shape the way we talk? If Jesus really will come on a day, not unlike this day, who Who should you speak to of Christ? Chapter 24, verse 43, Jesus says, Know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Coming at an hour you do not expect. Be ready. Be watchful. Be awake. This is the language that he uses. So um, let me retell for you my favorite be ready story. It comes from Robbie Robbins. He was an Air Force pilot during the first Iraq war. And after he flew his 300th mission as the war was coming to a close, he was surprised to have been given permission to immediately pull his crew together and fly his plane home. They flew across the ocean to Massachusetts and then had a long drive to western Pennsylvania. They drove all night, and when his buddies dropped him off at his driveway, just after sunup, there's a big banner across the garage. It says, Welcome home, Daddy. And he's thinking, How did they know? Because no one had called, and the crew themselves hadn't expected to leave so quickly. Robin says, When I walked into the house, though, the kids, about half dressed for school, screamed, Daddy! And my wife, Susan, came running down the hall. He says she looked terrific, hair fixed, makeup on, crisp yellow dress. And he says, how did you know? And through tears of joy, she says, I didn't. But once we knew the war was over, we knew you'd be coming home one of these days. And we knew you'd try to surprise us. So we were ready every day. We knew you'd try to surprise us. So we were ready every day. He is coming at a day, even an hour, when we do not expect him to come. On a normal, just like every other day, just like this day. We have to be ready every day. We have to live ready, Jesus is teaching us. And he drives the time frame down to the day, even the hour so that our readiness extends down to that level. And so it'd be foolish, bordering on dangerous, to take a day off and self-indulge, thinking, ah, it's not going to be this day. 
It'd be foolish, bordering on dangerous, to take even an hour off and self-indulge, to watch that video or drive to that place, to let your guard down for even one hour, thinking, surely it won't be this hour. Jesus says, you never know. You can't know. So you must also be ready. What does it mean to be ready? He talks about it in this passage in verse 45. He says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he'll set him over all his possessions. And so to be ready, according to Jesus is not principally to be prophetically obsessed with charts and graphs and predictions and all that kind of stuff. But it is principally at its core to be believing, to believe that he really is coming on an ordinary day and to live faithfully and wisely in light of that promise. And so let me make a couple suggestions to you. We sang it. We sang glorious day, right? Glorious day. So you're going to walk out of the doors today, and what is it? It's a glorious day. We have lots of them in North Carolina. When you see a glorious day, you ought to think, ooh, this could be that day. I should be ready. Okay? I should be ready. Let the weather be your prompt to ready you for Christ. Okay? Now, a couple years ago, we memorized this verse in chapter 24. Uh, Therefore, you, must also be, you also must be ready For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Great time to rememorize it, okay? Let's let's rememorize this this week. And then just put this around you as a prompt. Put up 24-44. You'll hopefully see it around campus the next few weeks. 24-44. Be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect, okay? 24-44. Be ready. But what if it was today? Would you be found faithful today? Would, would husbands and wives be found loving well and forgiving well on this day? Would parents be found parenting well, raising their kids in the ways of the Lord by your example and your teaching on this day? Or would this be a day when you provoked your kids to anger? Um, sons and daughters, would you be found um, Honoring your parents on this day? Would, would neighbors be found loving neighbors on this day? Jesus is calling his disciples, you and me, to be ready and to live ready every day, to live wisely and faithfully in light of his promised return. Okay. He's also upping the urgency of your decision. I know some of you come with friends or family and you're checking us out and you're sitting on the edges and you're, you're trying to figure this all out. You're thinking, I'm, I'm not ready yet, but someday I think I might. You know, Jesus is saying this is a great day for you to trust him and enter into readiness for his return. You do not want to be caught unaware, unbelieving, unfaithful on that day. It's interesting, um, a couple years ago, Amazon said that the most highlighted passage in any Kindle book by almost twice is this excerpt from Catching Fire and the Hunger Games. 
And it simply says, because sometimes things happen to people and they're not equipped to deal with it. For some reason that resonated with people. And Jesus says it should. Because it's true. Um, he says he will come when you least expect it. Maybe on a day in the middle of a week when you're at work or on the weekend when you're relaxing at home. Maybe when you're in church. You want to be ready on that day. I, I like what Martin Luther is attributed to have said. He said Christians ought to live like Jesus died this morning and rose this afternoon and was coming back this evening. On Holy Tuesday, Jesus is asking us all, um, are you living ready? Okay. Let's pray together. Jesus, we, we come to you and we confess that we are often forgetful, not mindful of this promise of yours. It seems too long. It seems not likely that this would be the day, and yet, and that affects our readiness, and so forgive us for that, and help us be people who take you at your word and believe your promise that this could be that glorious day. And uh, so I pray, for Jesus, as we approach your table now, that you would hear our confessions of pride, and of unreadiness, and we want to draw near to you anyway by what you've done for us on the cross, dying for our sins, so that here at this table we might find grace to help us in time of need as we draw near to you, our Savior and our King. And so together we remember